So far in our study of Genesis, that's the book we're in right now, uh, we've covered the first six days of creation, first six days. And on each of those days, we've seen God open his mouth and by the word of his power, just a, just a few and God said, just a few and God said statements, and, and galaxies came into existence. The earth was formed and shaped, then filled with roses and, and apple trees, whales and eagles, lions and kangaroos, all manner of life. Uh, and the highest in God's estimation, us, his beloved image bearers, all by the word of God's power. And with all his work in view uh, on day six, it is said at the end in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, everything that he made. And behold, it was, it was very good. It was good. And, and that's where we left off last time. God looking and beholding uh, uh, the earth and all of his creation and saying, ah, oh, very good, very good. And, and now tonight we turn our attention to the seventh and final day of creation. And so let's go ahead and read our passage, pray, and dig in. So be, get your sheets in front of you. Uh, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, creator, uh, the, 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 the giver of every good and every perfect gift that, that comes from above to us. Uh, Lord, we, we, just, we just know that right now we can't muster up faith. We can't manufacture a, 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 a passion for you in our hearts. We can't force ourselves to want to submit to your word and, and know you and love you and worship you. And so, Father, we just right now admit together that we are totally dependent on you right now, that we need your Holy Spirit to come move in our cold and disinterested hearts and breathe life into us. Show us the glory of your name in this passage, Lord. Reveal to us what you have for us tonight, your will for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the seventh day of creation is totally different than the first six days. And let me draw out a few of those unique features for us. What makes day seven so different? Well, first, note that God doesn't speak on day seven. There's no need to. Everything's already created and functioning in perfect order. So there's no and God said statements, no speech. Also, at the end of each of the first six days of creation so far, there's been this concluding statement uh, that says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day and the second day and the third day and so forth. But here on the seventh day, there's no such concluding remark. And so it implies that this day never ends. 
And we're going to come back to that later. Another difference is that this is the only day of the seven that God blesses and makes holy. It's the only day. None of the other days are blessed. None of them are made holy. Just day seven. And, and finally, days one through three correspond to days four through six. And what I mean by that is on day one, remember, God said, let there be light and there was light. And on the corresponding day four, God filled the earth with the greater light and the lesser lights and placed them in the sky, the sun, moon, and stars. And another example would be day two, God made the sky. And then the corresponding day five, God filled the sky with all sorts of winged creatures. And this happens for each of the six days. They, they correspond to one another. They all have these corresponding days. But seven, day seven does not. It, it, it stands on its own alone. It's like six plus one. Now, uh, uh, we're identifying, uh, I'm identifying all these unique features of day seven. Why? Why am I bringing to your attention that day seven stands apart? Oh, and that's because they're showing us that this day is special to God. It's a special day. This day has importance and, and significance. And so the question for us to answer is, what makes day seven so special? What makes it important? What makes it significant so that it stands apart from all of creation? And the answer to that question is found in verses one and two. So go ahead and look there with me. It says, thus, and remember, chronologically, this is following directly after God saw everything and, and, and called it good. So thus, after seeing everything, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested. He rested. This is what makes day seven so special. God rested on the seventh day. Now, don't be mistaken. God's not resting because he's tired or worn out. Remember, his power is inexhaustible. He, he doesn't get tired. He, he doesn't sleep. He, he's never worn down. He doesn't uh, get the flu or the cold or, or cold or COVID. He's never weary. And so the word rested in this context simply means that God ceased. He stopped his creative activity. He, he played the last note. Uh, he penned the final period. He, he made the final paint stroke. He was done. He was done. Creation was finished, beautiful and fully ordered according to his wisdom. And so on day seven, he rested. And, and to God, and, and to God in his perspective, there was something so special about his rest. Uh, there was something so extraordinary uh, on that day when he finished creating and he, and he sat back with, with this uh, divine, deep satisfaction and, and joy and contentment. There was something so special about that moment in time when he finished everything and he rested that in verse three, it says that God blessed. He blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. It was so special to him. He blesses it and he makes it holy. And remember, he does that to no other days. 
Now, the word blessed has already appeared twice in the creation account so far. And so we need to look back to those references to understand what does it mean for God to bless the seventh day? So once in Genesis 1, verse 22, on the fifth day, after God created the creatures of the sky and then the sea, it says, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and, and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And, and so here, the blessing of God, it, it's directly linked, it's connected to prosperous abundance and multiplication, life and more life. And this is exactly the same way it's used the second time it appears in Genesis 1, verse 28. On the sixth day, look there with me, that's in your cross-reference section. And God create, after God created man and woman in his image, it says in verse 28, and God blessed them, there's our word, and God said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so what we can gather as we do our study from these two occurrences is that this idea of blessing is connected to God's generous giving, his, his, his nature to giving, to the way God uh, in his nature, he, he lavishes, he pours forth goodness upon his creation and he grants them divine prosperity, divine fruitfulness, be fruitful, multiply, fill. And so when God blesses the seventh day, he's saying that this day in particular, this seventh day contains in itself incredible power, incredible potential and opportunity for, for his creation to experience his loving generosity and favor. Now, this is not to say that the other days don't give us this opportunity. But God is saying that there is something special and unique about this seventh day. There's something uniquely prosperous and good and blessed. And, and we know that God really does endow this day with special potential and that he holds it in high regard because he not only blesses the seventh day, but he says that it says that he blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Now, I, I think I've told you this before, but it really uh, bears repeating. Chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream is the best ice cream there is. Oh, amen. Uh, I don't want to hear any arguments like chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream is the best ice cream. and It's not even close. And so I, as a obedient God follower, uh, rightly love it and enjoy it. And in some seasons, buy it too often. Uh, but here's the problem, guys. My wife, Tiffany, she loves ice cream, too. She loves ice cream. And it doesn't have to be cookie dough. It doesn't have to be any certain flavor. She's not picky if it's frozen and creamy and has sugar in it. She's going to eat it. Okay. Um, but what's been nice for me is that Peter, so our, our little sweet, smiley, eight month old son, he's had a dairy sensitivity. Uh, and since Tiffany was nursing, she couldn't eat dairy. <laughs> 
So whenever I bought cookie dough ice cream, right, I'd buy it from the store for myself, claim it as my own, I'd put it in the freezer, it'd be safe and sound. I never had to worry about her eating the ice cream anymore. But Peter's sensitivity's gone now, it seems. It's sad. And guess what's no, what's no longer safe? My ice cream. And this is one of the greatest areas of tension in the Lee household. I'm not kidding you. We will argue over if she eats my ice cream. <laughs> Tiffany eating the ice cream that I have claimed for myself, that I have set apart as my own. And, and, and now you're wondering, why am I bringing this up? Well, well one, to expose Tiffany's thievery <laughs> and deep rebellion against God. And two, okay, as an illustration, to give you an idea, to get us an idea of what it means when God makes something or someone holy. Because you're going to, if you read the Bible, if you read the Older Testament, the Newer Testament, you're going to come across this word holy and the concept of holy over and over again. And its basic meaning is very simple. When God makes something holy, he claims it for himself. He, he takes it out of ordinary circulation, whether it's a person, a place, a utensil, or a day, as is the case in our passage. When God makes something or someone holy, he's setting it apart and he says, this is mine. I'm endowing it with special significance. It's sacred. It's special to me. Now, I know you'll say, uh, but doesn't God own everything? So he sets this apart and he said it's mine, but doesn't God own everything? And the answer is yes. But in the same way, I own a, a few different pair of shoes, uh, pairs of shoes, and I think some of you do too. I, I, I do have some though, like my Allen Edmonds, given to me by a friend that I could never afford. Um, if you see me on Sunday, <laughs> killing it guys. Um, my album amendments given to me by a friend, set apart. I have them set apart for special occasions, certain occasions, you know, date night with my wife, church on Sunday. Um, and God does the same when he declares someone or something holy. And so, so God has claimed uh, the, the, the seventh day as his day. It's his day. And therefore, it requires us to treat it as special, as sacred, as holy. In other words, to treat the seventh day like any other normal day, was to profane uh, what God made holy. It'd be like Caleb, choose which one, uh, borrowing my Allen Edmonds, knowing that I consider them special, and then wearing them to go dig holes in mud. Not only would that ruin the purpose for the shoes, but it would show disrespect and disregard for me, the owner of the shoes. And if you've ever lend out your clothes, you know this feeling. It's like, and this is what it means to profane what God has made holy. It's to treat something as ordinary, as not special, as not important. Now, in this creation account, God doesn't give any specific instructions to Adam and Eve concerning what it looks like to practically treat the seventh day as holy. There's no instructions here given. All we have is God's example. That's all we got, that he ceased working on this day. And, and, and this indicates as our creator, there's a model for us to follow. But later in Exodus 20, 
uh, this becomes explicit when God gives clear instructions concerning the seventh day to Moses for the people of Israel. So it gets, it gets explicit eventually. And in fact, these instructions in Exodus 20 are so important that they are listed. These instructions on the Sabbath are so important that they're listed in the, the Ten Commandments. More specifically, they're the Fourth Commandment. So look at your cross-reference section. Uh, in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, God commands the people of Israel, and he's saying this, remember the Sabbath day. And when you see Sabbath, just think seventh day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For this is why in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in summary, on the seventh day of creation, God ceases from working. And therefore, God sets the foundation and he sets the pattern for all of human rest as a whole. And, and this is made explicit, as we just read, in the fourth commandment, when God tells the people of Israel, he says, don't do any kind of work. No planting, no plowing, no selling, no buying, no work for anyone. Your animals don't work. Your servants don't work. Your children don't work. No one works on this day, on this Sabbath day. And in this way, then, the Sabbath would be treated as special. It would be a very, very different day. Sacred, set apart from all the others, dedicated to acknowledging and enjoying the goodness of God as our creator who gives us rest. Now, the people of Israel celebrated the Sabbath. Uh, I don't know if you know this. They, they celebrated the Sabbath typically Friday evening to Saturday evening. So that was their rhythm. That was their seventh day. However, since Jesus was resurrected from the dead on a Sunday, the early church, and even today, typically the Sabbath is observed on a Sunday. Now, before going further, I want to make very clear, okay, very clear. Nowhere in the New Testament does God command believers in Jesus to take a Sabbath on a specific day of the week. You won't find that. In fact, on two occasions, uh, the Apostle Paul teaches that believers are not obligated to observe the Sabbath as it was laid out in the law of Moses, that specific description. So, for example, in Colossians 2, verse 16, this is on your cross-reference sheet. Look there with me. Colossians 2, verse 16, uh, after Paul just got done describing how God raised us from the dead and forgave us of all our sin through the debt-canceling death of Jesus. So after he got done doing that, look there with me, it says, therefore, that is based on Jesus' death, let no one pass judgment on you and questions of food and drink. So diet or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So the Apostle Paul says, 
Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let them condemn you. Don't let them look down on you because you don't celebrate the seventh day on the day that typical Jews do. Don't let them judge you for that. He assures them, you don't need to celebrate the Sabbath on a particular day to have a right relationship with Jesus. That's not the case. In Romans 14, 5, he's speaking on the same issues. It's another cross-reference section. It's kind of similar. It says, Paul writes, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So in other words, Paul says that whether you believe that one should celebrate the Sabbath on Friday evening to Saturday evening, or whether you believe that Monday or, or Tuesday is just as good a day to honor God with rest, is purely a matter of what? You being convinced in your own mind. This is what we call a matter of conscience. A matter of conscience. Not a matter of obedience, direct obedience to the Lord. So keeping the Sabbath on a specific day is not required for salvation. However, okay, this is where we get. However, taking a Sabbath, that is taking uh, a day, one day, one day out of seven every week to cease from all work, to stop working, to stop laboring, to stop striving, to stop pushing forward and dedicate ourselves to savoring the goodness of God is the pattern established at creation for human flourishing. God rested on the seventh day and set that pattern for us before the fall. So one day in seven is the pattern for a best for best humans to best flourish. Remember, God blessed the seventh day. He blessed it. So that when we take a Sabbath, say, let's say this week, you're like, I'm gonna take one out of seven. I'm gonna take a Sabbath. According to God's design, it's, it's gonna provide you, it's gonna provide me with an opportunity to experience and, and, and enter his rest, his contentment his satisfaction, his well-being and peace. Uh, to say it more strongly, if we never take a Sabbath, we're going to miss out on a gift given to us from God to let us flourish in this life. We miss out. So think about it. Just imagine what would happen. What would happen, really, if every week you chose that one day, one day, where you didn't do any homework. You guys are like, amen. <laughs> you didn't do any chores. Amen again. You didn't even work out or play a sport. You're like, oh. You didn't even binge on video games or Netflix or YouTube. But you spent the entire day, every week, one out of seven, committed to resting in God. No worrying about deadlines, no striving to get better at something, uh, no stressful pursuit to produce and, and make something of yourself to get these grades or whatever. No anxious search to, to buy something that's going to supposedly make you more happier than you are already. None of that. Just a day of rest. No shopping, no laboring, no working. Committed to God. A day where you let everything else go, right? Right? 
where you, you give, you know, all your desires, all your ambitions, all your responsibilities to God, trusting that he's going to take care of everything. And all you have to do is rest. So when we take a Sabbath, we're affirming, we're declaring to ourselves and to the world that we trust that God is ultimately in control, not us. That we're not ultimately in control of our destiny, God is. When we take that day of rest, we're, it's symbolizing us surrendering our lives to God. That whatever we would have to go without to take that rest as he wants us to is worth it. He will supply. So, so that's the kind of practical rhythm God offers to us every seventh day, one in seven. And sadly, we're, we, man, we are missing out on this present blessing. This is a present blessing available to us all right now. But God's rest is not just for us now, right? It's not just for us in this moment, but it's also for us in the future. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, on the seventh day, unlike the first six days of creation, it never says, it never says, and there was morning and there was uh, evening. Uh, there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. You never get that statement. It's not there. There's no concluding statement. And so that means God's rest, his perfect contentment, joyous is, uh, 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 satisfaction is eternal. It's everlasting. It's always and forever. And, and some of us are not only missing out on the present blessing of God's rest, but you're also missing out on the future blessing of God's rest. Because some of us still Students, it is so hard to actually renounce this world and to give and surrender yourself to Jesus. And so some of us still, still have not let go of the world. Some of us still have not truly surrendered to Jesus. You come to church, right? You know the gospel. Sometimes you even sing the songs, but the truth is you're still not fully surrendered to Jesus. You're still not hands open. You're still grabbing and clutching for control of your life. You're still chasing and striving for the things of the world, measuring your success and your self-worth by what you produce and what you possess. What you produce and what you possess. What grades you have and what kind of shoes you have. How well you did at the volleyball tournament and do you got the nice new uh, Lululemon jeans or the whatever, the makeup, whatever's cool, guys. Hey, I don't even know this stuff. I actually lifted up a list of like the top 25 teen things and Lululemon is on it. So I don't know if you guys like that, but, but you know what it is? Air Force Ones. Air Force Ones are really popular. You know what were popular when I was growing up? Air Force Ones. I had a few pairs. Sacred, special, uh, set apart. Uh, okay, so digression. <laughs> As, but, but this is the problem. You're measuring your success by what you produce and what you possess. And so you don't know the rest of God. You don't know the rest of God. You don't have the present nor the future promise of rest. But here's the good news. The offer Jesus gives us in Matthew eleven twenty eight still stands tonight. And what's amazing is I did not discuss with Justin to read that passage tonight. 
but it's the same passage. And, and you know what Jesus says there, and this offer is still to you right now. So the son of God resurrected from heaven extends this invitation to us all. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Students, Jesus is still saying, come to me. He's saying, come to me every day. He's saying, come to me still, to me. I'm daily trying to enter the rest and peace that God gives us, offers to us. And he's still promising to give you a rest, a, a real rest, a satisfaction and a contentment of your soul that lasts forever. And so I, I encourage us, let's not waste our lives trying to strive and work and achieve and buy our way to rest because our hearts will have none. We will have none until we grab hold of the rest found in Jesus alone. That's where your rest, your true rest really is. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we, we seek to honor you and we want to figure out it is hard in our day and age to take one of seven and to experience your blessing and your promise to prosper us through rest. You know, we got to do anything, Father. You're working and we're waiting. And so, Father, teach us, show us the way, show us the day, uh, uh, show us what goodness would come into our life if we truly consecrate, set apart ourselves to you, one of seven, to, to seek you, to know you, to know your goodness. And so, Father, we, and we ultimately pray, Father, that we would have your eternal rest. I pray that these students would not glaze over with another invitation to receive Jesus, but they would be convinced in their heart that they need him, that they want him, and that it would be a land on them afresh to crave the rest that Jesus gives. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.